Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that pairs compelling themes with some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. I'm Brittany. And in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the theme of shame in Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra. To begin our discussion, we're going to bring up a quote when Iroh is training Zuko on how to redirect lightning. Zuko. You must let go of your feelings of shame if you want your anger to go away. But I don't feel any shame at all. I'm as proud as ever. Prince Zuko, pride is not the opposite of shame, but its source. True humility is the only antidote to shame. Iroh's so wise. And I enjoy this because angry Zuko is often a comedic element of the show. Mm-hmm. where Iroh tells him to be calm, and he's trying to claim that he's calm while showing how not calm he is. While fire erupts everywhere around <laughs> exactly. him. Exactly. Uh, which I, I thoroughly enjoy. But I, I also appreciate, especially in scenes like this, where Iroh really brings in crucial wisdom to Zuko's growth and to, I think, the themes of the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say, how much do you agree or disagree with the quote and Iroh's perspective? But... There's also so much we have to talk about, so... I think within the show, it does show that it's true. Because I think Iroh is a really great example of of that humility in action. Iroh doesn't have the pride of his family. Who knows what he was like when he was younger. But by the time the show opens, we see him being a humble person. And that humility is in dealing with his past experiences and accepting that past, including the bad that he's done. And doing what he can in recompense. He's already a member of the White Lotus before the show begins. He's already doing Mm -hmm. these things behind the scenes. And I'm guessing that he intentionally works with Zuko to help in this regard. But he's doing these things because he realizes that the world as it exists and the system that he is a part of and he has power within is not a just one. Um, and yeah, I just, I appreciate that, that Iroh is able to not have, so that shame alongside being just a shameless person who is always thinking about food and stuff all the time as well. (laughs) And totally cool about that. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think it's an interesting perspective. I don't think it fully encompasses shame. I don't think it's entirely culturally competent, but I'll get into that more. In the future. Oh, I look forward to that. Ooh. <laughs> but why don't we move on to your character? I have absolutely no idea who maybe you will choose. Yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to, to bring a character who maybe we haven't talked a lot about yet, but I just kept coming back to Zuko. I mean, who else is there even <laughs> in this series? <laughs> and... Yeah, so I, I just need to talk about Zuko in regards to shame because there's yeah. so much to to get into with his character there. And one of the things I think that's interesting about Zuko that I th- don't think we've brought up on this show is Zuko really represents concepts of duality and mirroring for the show in really interesting ways. And, you know, even his design shows that in that half of his face is burnt, but the other mm-hmm. half is not. So we see that there's two competing aspects of his personality within him as particularly at the beginning of the show and as we have mentioned before these two competing sides of his ancestry right yes which again shows how for iroh zuko is the key to regaining balance because he is able to bring together the ancestry of the avatar and the fire lord and you know utilize both of those those identities he's the fire nation's avatar 
Oh, I like that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, because imagine what would have happened if there wasn't a person who could take the throne of the Fire Nation who was willing to. What if there was only Azula? The exactly. <laughs> oh, no. And then, and yet, what? They jail Azula and. Then there's constant uprisings for people who want her back on the throne. Like, there's no legitimacy there. Mm-hmm. And he brings that. And I think that's that's important. But it's getting off track. Sorry. And what is already, I'm sure, going to be a very long episode. So um, <laughs> one of the aspects of duality that I wanted to bring up was the dual natures of Zuko's shame. Zuko experiences two different kinds of shame. A shame that is brought on by social expectations. And mm-hmm. I think a shame that is a personal shame that he puts on himself based off his conscience. And his journey is kind of figuring out which is which and which is something that he he actually, I think, wants to own and address. Because the shame over losing his honor and... Honor! <laughs> exactly. The, the expectations that he, he feels put on him by his father are his opening motivation. But they're things that he constantly struggles to reconcile with the shame that he feels about his actions and over the series we see him teeter between the two after he lets appa go after he captured him mm-hmm. he falls into an actual illness he gets feverish because you know iroh says that's because his two sides are, are fighting like they cannot coexist in his body in the same way and of course at the end of that season is when he ultimately chooses to fight against the avatar with mm-hmm. azula and betray his uncle. And betray his uncle, which ultimately, I think, becomes his biggest point of shame. Mm-hmm. Because he, he responds to both of those kinds of shame, the social shame and the personal shame, in a way that is characteristic for Zuko with anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the kind of more social aspect of shame, I think that he see, is this is his anger at the world. After he learns how to redirect lightning from Iroh, he goes and he starts yelling at the storm. You never stopped, you know, hitting you with everything you've got, like yelling at the world for throwing everything it has at him. That's the anger and the way that he sees himself in the world. But his anger in the third season, especially in the the episode at Ember Island, is all directed at himself. Or not all, but mostly directed at himself, where he Mm -hmm. goes on this rant where he's like, you know, I should be happy, but I'm just so angry. And he lists a few things, but at the end he just says, I'm mostly angry at myself. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's how he, he really starts to realize what he has to do. And that's that's what leads him to not just be ashamed of what he's done and not just be angry about it and angry at himself about it, which is destructive, but instead to be productive by telling his father, not challenging his father, but telling him that he's going to go work with the Avatar and then going and doing it. Mm-hmm. And on the point of humility that we saw in the quote by Iroh at the beginning of the episode, Zuko humbles himself three times in the show by bowing to someone else. Mm -hmm. He bows to his father in the flashback Mm -hmm. during the Agni Kai, where he refuses to fight him, um, which Iroh in the recounting says that he's banished because of the shame of his weakness in not fighting. He then humbles himself to Team Avatar when he goes to ask, basically, if he can help. And he bows to Iroh when they're finally reunited. Mm -hmm. And... I think that that's really telling because the three times where he is showing, I think, this intense act of humility, especially for someone who believes in honor the way that he does, is first in refusing to fight his father and then his choice to make recompense to Team Avatar and to his uncle, the people who he wronged most, are really powerful. 
and and yeah just i think a really interesting aspect of his personality and the way that he 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 is least shameful in his actions at those times well and each of those times really are kind of a a catalyst for the next step Mm. on his journey of becoming who he becomes absolutely and you know imagine if the first time that we see him bowing to someone in the sense of humility he's traumatized for it he is literally scarred because of that choice and I can imagine why that would lead to anger and shame and these other kinds of things because the person who was his only biological parent left that's how they responded to this I think crucial moment in his in his life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all of this is just I think further proof as to how Zuko's arc is the best redemption arc in mm. I I cannot think of a better <laughs> redemption arc in any piece of media I've I've consumed. Oh, Zuko. It's just, it's so good. And why you really had no choice of what character to choose. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Because Zuko's arc is about him learning what he's done wrong and believing what he's done wrong and Mm -hmm. choosing to do something about it. Not just having one big moment of change because someone convinced him to do something which he then dies and is never dealing with the ramifications of. Yeah. But it is humbling himself and taking action to right perspectives along the way and exactly and it's it's in fits fits and burts sometimes he goes backwards and he backslides um and it's just uh it's just really well done and and i think he's becoming my favorite character in avatar which is saying something i know there's it's it's so hard to choose but yeah he will always be in my top two (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure we've got more, a lot more to say about Zuko, so we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> well, yes, especially since my plot also involves Zuko. Gasp! Yeah, and I'm interested on what, what you'll think of some of this, because I like all of your points, for sure. But some of what I'm going to talk about is going to contradict a few things, so we'll see. We'll oh, okay, see. okay. Part of it is just coming from different perspectives. Totally. Not necessarily that one's right or wrong. So when... We were doing Shame, and we were doing it for Avatar and, and Legend of Korra. I was just like, I want to do a little more research, because I know ideas of shame and ideas of honor are very important to Japanese culture, to Chinese mm. culture, and some of these cultures that the show in general has let influence them from aesthetics to actual some cultural elements. And so I did too much research, which is also (laughs) way not enough research. So I'll go through a little of that first, like just as kind of the setting for then what I want to talk about for the plot point, because I find it interesting and... It's our podcast. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, hopefully you will too, but if not, I'm recording and editing. So... (laughs) So I was looking up some things and... A lot of what I was reading was bringing back ideas of honor and and loss of honor or shame as being important to Confucian thought. Mm. And Confucius obviously influenced Chinese culture significantly and then that carried over to Japanese culture as well. So from what I understand of 
what I was reading about confusion thought is that, the, you know, the feeling of being dishonored has been very significant for thousands of years in these cultures that's carried through to, to modern Chinese and Japanese cultures. I didn't have time to look into anything in Korean cultures, but there is some of that there as well. And I was looking at this other study done by three different people, one associated with Harvard, one associated with the World Bank, and one associated with... crap, I'm drawing a blank. But they conducted research on people who were born and raised in China, who were currently living in the United States or Canada, but they had not lived in the United States or Canada for more than six years. Hmm. And among them, they surveyed about terms for shame. And it was fascinating because amongst the participants, they came up with 313 shame terms. Hmm. Clearly, it is a very important part of, of Chinese culture. So I thought I would share some of the examples because they're really fascinating. And some, I think, Westerners can relate to. So one of the terms for shame basically means looking for a hole to crawl into. We even have a phrase like, oh, I just wish that the, the earth opened up and I fell in. You know, we, we use terms like that. So I think that's one that we very much understand. But then there's also ones that Westerners, potentially excluding people of Asian descent, depending on, you know, what generation they, they are, mm. that they would just not understand, which is um, one, <laughs> which you will not understand, <laughs> is keeping someone on the stage or in the spotlight, like in parentheses, kind of translated to embarrassing someone, hmm. <laughs> which is very not. But I like the stage. Yeah, it's why I made it a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a different one, Ashamed to Death. Hmm. There was Thin Facial Skin, meaning easy to feel ashamed. Hmm. There was So Ashamed that the ancestors of eight generations can feel it. Oh, I know, it's so intense. There was Hiding One's Illness from Doctors trying to hide shameful things, which I was like, oh my goodness, my mother does this. Mm. Like me, half Japanese American, multiple generations down, I'm just like, but no, you have to (laughs) tell the doctors so that you can explore these things and get the correct treatment or whatnot. But like, oh, I probably should be a little more understanding of that now. (laughs) And then two others that I just jotted down. One was, even a devil would be scared of one who does not maintain their face, or in parentheses, a shameless person. And then there was embarrassing others, or does not save others' faces. Mm. As you can tell just from this small group of terms, face is really important. And I know you, Chris, have heard saving face before. I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of the term saving face. And so if it's, you know, it's, it's a complex concept in it. But if you're not familiar with it, like just kind of a really cursory look would be along the lines of personal integrity or good character. And like a, a different definition I saw was confident society has in you or you have in yourself in fulfilling social roles. Mm. So that means if you fail to live up to those expectations or those social roles, you lose face. And so I kind of wanted to discuss the idea of losing face. Uh, It's around Zuko's scar. 
so while you yourself can lose face, you can also cause others to lose face. For example, if you disagree with someone in public, causes them to feel embarrassment, which causes them to lose face, Mm -hmm. which is what Zuko did in the military meeting. He spoke out saying, this strategy that you have is wrong, morally wrong. Yeah. Which means that Zuko is insulting the military leader and who appointed the military leader, it's the Fire Lord, so it's insulting the Fire Lord himself. And so obviously this resulted in the Agni Kai between Zuko and his dad, which you were talking about. And I think we as Westerners see that Agni Kai and like think it's really horrifying I did think it was interesting, though, as I was doing a bit of research that kind of helped maybe put it in a slightly different light is that when a person has done something wrong or socially inappropriate, admitting the misconduct and desiring to correct behavior is an act of atonement that requires courage. So I was thinking about, you know, could that be applied to Zuko when he refused to participate in the Agni Kai, which maybe is culturally, you know, could be seen as refusing to take the consequences of losing face Mm -hmm. and causing others to lose face and furthering to refuse to comply with social morals. Again, I'm not an expert (laughs) in any of these things, but one of the, the papers I was reading was talking about when someone lacks a sense of shame in Chinese culture, they may be seen as no longer predictable, trustworthy, and controllable, and may be perceived as a threat to the moral order of society. And so if that is the case, or could be seen as the case in what was happening with the Agni Kai and the Fire Lord, I mean, obviously, this is not Chinese culture, it is not Japanese culture, but they are definitely taking a lot of mm-hmm. things from, in which case it, it would make a certain sense to remove that person from the community that they supposedly endanger. In this case, it would be via exile. Yet, one of the things that's particularly intense about the situation is that both the scarring of his face and the exile were meant to be a permanent loss of face. So the exile was this impossible task of finding the avatar that has been missing for a hundred years. Ozai did not think that he could actually do this. So Mm -hmm. it was this permanent, you can never come back and I'm going to give you something, a task to do that you can never accomplish. Also, since he would never actually be able to return to the Fire Nation, that would also mean that his scar was always only signifying his loss of face to himself and that shame he could never atone for. So, yeah, I don't know. There were just interesting thoughts that I had never thought about or explored before. Yeah, that is very interesting. I I, I haven't thought too much about the social utility of an Agni Kai and what that means for a community mm-hmm. who chooses to use this as a form of cohesion and, and, and control, particularly because the Fire Nation is so often depicted as just violent imperialist. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to just be like, oh, well, this is another violent act they have. In, Look at in this it. barbaric practice. Exactly. <laughs> and of course, the bar- term barbaric is itself mm-hmm. extremely problematic. 
But yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that. In the most recent rewatch that we're doing right now, actually, it made me re-realize or, or kind of focus on the fact that the Agni Kai and the Exile were two different steps, mm-hmm. where first it was the Agni Kai for disrespecting the general and thus the Fire Lord, but then Exile was due to him not participating in the Agni Kai. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that that shows more of that kind of social utility that you're you're mentioning in, in your research, which I think is really, really interesting but it does make me question, and perhaps this is culturally insensitive or, or, or imperialist in, in my perspective, but the fact that someone who has different ideas is scarred and exiled because of those ideas is, I think, really indicative of problematic power structures. Yes, but... We don't know if it was just that he had different ideas or it was that he publicly called this person out in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But for me, when I I was thinking about different ideas, I didn't just mean the ideas of the general, but also the ideas of not wanting to participate in the Agni Kai. Mm. Though that was done out of familial loyalty or love perhaps not just an aversion to violence so it's Mm -hmm. not the same as a conscientious objector for example would be yeah it's just it's it's a really interesting complex kind of aspect yeah Uh, the other issue is that he was a child Uh, (laughs) 13 he's a teenager (laughs) but yeah it's this is really really interesting different perspective that uh i hadn't really thought of it through yeah, that's what why I found it so interesting, because even coming from a half Japanese American background, yeah, when I first watched this, I was like, oh, Fire Lord, bad, poor Zuko, you know, even though I'd previously been very like, oh, Zuko, what an <laughs> angsty teen. And then I was like, oh, you have reason to be angsty. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was really interesting to find it's not necessarily quite as clear cut as as it would be just coming from a Western perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Mm, Sure. So I guess we should move on to your compelling question for me. I know after that point, you're like, what even is compelling anymore? Right, I have nothing nothing to to add. (laughs) But why do you think that shame is so connected with fire specifically in Mm. Avatar? We've talked a lot about the different elements and kind of what they represent, and almost all the things that came to mind when I thought about shame, especially in the first series in Avatar, really revolved around the use of firebending, and mm-hmm. not so with the other bending forms that we, we see much of. So, yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. That is interesting, because we just recently watched the episode with Zhang Zhang mm-hmm. and him having, yeah, this really deep sense of shame around firebending Mm. and being reluctant to even teach anybody it now i'm i'm wondering if there would be a connection that not necessarily was built into the show but i'm kind of wondering about since shame in japanese and chinese cultures to some degree is used as a method for not just like social control in a bad way but also social control in a good way 
I mean, it'd be really nice if Americans had a little bit more shame and were like, <laughs> you know, maybe throwing science to the side isn't that a good idea. Or I am ashamed that I believe things that when people fact check them are just so wrong. You know, it would be nice. I feel shame over the imperialism that my country has done to all of these other countries and destabilized whole regions over you know, so I think we can use a little more shame in our society. <laughs> and so I'm kind of wondering with the uncontrolled or the very difficult to control aspect of fire and that being at least what he cautioned against. I wonder if there's a connection there. I think Aang's automatic reaction when he burnt Katara's hands mm -hmm. was shame and he never wanted to do any firebending again. And I think maybe one of the reasons it turns up more with fire in this series is that fire, if it's going to cause damage, causes permanent damage. Mm. So to Zuko's face, to a forest, sure, a forest can regrow, but those trees are gone, you know? Whereas earthbending, you can undo a lot of stuff. I mean, sure, if you crush something, you can't, but like... In and of itself, it's one, not uncontrollable, mm. and two, it doesn't necessitate permanent damage in the same way that I think fire does. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because near the end of the, of the series, when Zuko and Aang are working with the dragons, mm -hmm. they talk about how fire isn't just destruction, but it's also life. I love how they, they even start that at the very beginning. Every time Iroh talks about how firebending's in the breath, you know, mm -hmm. it's this, this core aspect of life, which I think is really, really, really cool. But I think that there is a uniquely destructive trait to fire that earth, wind, and water don't have to the same extent. Mm -hmm. But it also has this really unique connection to life that leads to firebending possibly needing more responsibility because it has so much more of this power and these connections to destruction and life. And that opens more opportunity for shame because when you have more responsibility, you have more opportunities to misuse that responsibility, whether mm -hmm. intentionally or purposefully or selfishly or not. It's not like, oh, I accidentally blew that glass of water over. Exactly. Oh, no. It's like, <laughs> oops, I started a tiny little fire and now the house is gone. Yeah. The other thing, which is less thematic and more narrative, is that I think it gives a really amazing mirroring between Zuko and Aang. Because what kind of surprisingly we find out that they are kind of competing protagonists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where both of them are protagonists, even though, especially for the first majority of the series, they have competing interests. They still both go through similar story beats and character moments. The episode The Storm that we recently watched is a really great example of this, where yeah. it's about both of their origin stories and how both of them have been, in many ways, betrayed and isolated from those who were in charge of their upbringing. Then we see, as you mentioned, Aang after he burns Katara, swears never to use firebending and then Zuko loses his firebending because of his inner conflicts that he has and so 
yeah, I just think it's it's really interesting to see both of them grapple with firebending in that way, and and why I think that episode with the dragons is such a, a crucial one because in many ways both of their paths finally converge, and they both are finally dealing with a shared um, obstacle that they're working together to overcome in regards to firebending and that power and their narrative arcs and the shame they feel, which is just great. And that they get to see this fire be used and this like fire dance that yes. they get to do with the dragons and see more the origin as a beautiful thing rather yeah. than just destructive or imperial. Absolutely. And a dance that they do together as well. Them coming together in a very thematically appropriate way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But what was your compelling question for me? So my question for you is, are there instances of shame in either series? We've only talked about The Last Airbender thus far, mm -hmm. <laughs> but in It or Legend of Korra that you relate to slash think you would feel if you were in certain characters' circumstances or that you really don't relate to? Hmm. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting question. When we were talking about bringing shame up as a theme, it was definitely something I, I've been thinking a lot about myself. The last therapist that I was seeing, one of the big issues that I was dealing with personally was how to navigate the shame that I felt about things in my life and how to kind of turn that into a healthy, a more healthy way of engaging with myself and my past and, and things like that. And so thinking about series that I love in the same context is, is fascinating. So one of the things that, that came to mind as a, a character who also I was thinking about before I chose to go with Zuko was Korra. Mm -hmm. And the way that Korra, out of her, the shame of needing the airbenders to kind of take over for her as she recovers from the trauma that she experienced, she isolates herself. Mm -hmm. and, and that was one of the things that was the most powerful elements of what I was working with my counselor and other kinds of mental health experts, um, Brene Brown has a podcast where she talks about mental health and, and these kinds of things. And one of the things that she said that has really stayed with me is that when you're looking at, at these similar emotions uh, of guilt and shame and embarrassment, shame is an isolating one. You can be guilty or embarrassed in community, but shame is one that takes you out of community because it's all about how you feel about what you did. It's something that is not about making restitution. It's not about finding out how other people feel. It's it's kind of, yeah, it's isolating. And From a Western perspective. From yeah. a Western perspective, yeah. Yeah, the, the way that I think about shame. Mm -hmm. it, it rang very true to me. And with Korra, we see her literally isolate herself. The only person she's kind of been talking to is Asami. And then she goes and she disguise herself as an earthbender and has like a whole episode of not engaging with anyone and mm -hmm. just kind of being out on her, on her own and she's even as she's trying to rejoin the world she does it without the people who could be her support mm -hmm. and i think a lot of that's because of her shame and so yeah that's something that that really comes to mind and touches me yeah although funnily enough though i think it's a good representation of that isolation it's also something that I don't think I would ever do. Like, I might at times, like, not respond to text for a day or something because I'm, <laughs> I'm down. But the idea of, of kind of moving my life or, or engaging with my life in these kind of long-term ways away from my network and my community is very, very audacious to me. Like, I, I cannot imagine not why anyone would do it, but why I would do something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, you would feel very guilty doing that. 
But she also also had a lot of trouble bending. Mm -hmm. Like she literally had to bend out things from her blood. Yeah. Um, So it might make more sense from also her, her being more debilitated. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I've never experienced the same kind of trauma, physical or emotional, as Cora did. So yeah, I'm certainly coming from a privileged perspective in, in some of those cases too. I don't know. Was there anything that you were thinking about in this? Yeah, well, I was definitely thinking about Aang. He felt shame about being the Avatar Mm. for a while because he hadn't dealt with the guilt that he felt for running away and not being there when the Fire Nation attacked the airbenders and, you know, genocided them. And then not intentionally, but what what happened was abandon the world to this hundred years war. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine I would feel very similarly. Absolutely. The guilt over that would be overwhelming. <laughs> right? Like your people group is gone and you're the avatar. You are in, in some ways responsible for 100 years of war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would <laughs> destroy us. Yeah, that'd be bad. <laughs> it's a good thing that he's 12 years old, I guess, maybe. And like the most fun loving yeah. kid in the world. But yes, it's uh, oof. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Kids show. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was also thinking about Zhao. Hmm. And at the end of season one he is falling into the ocean spirit and Suko reaches out his hand to to pull him back onto the ledge and he lets go and that in some ways like kind of not resonated with me personally but like with the practice of seppuku hmm. that so it most commonly was practiced it was a a samurai practice of ritual disembowelment and it was used in a few different scenarios but one of them was for a samurai to die with honor rather than fall into the hands of the enemy so i mean it's not a perfect parallel because there was no ritual or anything like that Mm -hmm. but this idea of it is better to die and is more honorable to die and to be the cause of my own death than fall into enemy hands right Mm -hmm. and so that kind of reminded me of that even though i don't personally resonate with that because Mm -hmm. again i grew up here and and people in japan don't even really ever do that anymore (laughs) so it's not a um, personal thing but it was kind of a little touch point that i thought of and the last thing i was thinking about which I don't relate to at all, but I think is fascinating, is Amon. Because he created this entire narrative for his character, essentially, Mm. that wore this mask because they were ashamed of the scarring that they had gotten from a bender attacking them. And that wasn't true. It Mm. wasn't real. And... I think Amon actually had deep-seated shame about being a bender with this intense power and being the child of someone so abusive and powerful at the same time. And from that, he wanted to eliminate bending altogether. 
but he masked where his actual shame was coming from and put on shame from a community he didn't even belong to. Hmm. Like Interesting. Zuko, actually, if he was going to have shame over the scarring, you know, that actually happened to him, but it didn't actually happen to Amon. But he got sympathy from the narrative of that shame. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Well, that actually leads into my missed opportunity. Oh, okay, let's do it. My missed opportunity is about Amon and Tarlok's upbringing, and particularly Tarlok's redemption. Hmm. Ugh, that ending scene. Very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. But I also felt like Tarlok's decision to not only do that, but to apologize and explain everything to Korra came a little bit too easy. And not, not enough of it was really seen on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about how he feels ashamed because he's become like his father in manipulating people and, and obviously using bloodbending. And we see these really awful traumatic events of their upbringing where mm-hmm. the boys are forced to use bloodbending against each other. And it would have been better to see him go through the process of developing that shame rather than just... I'm shameless, I captured Korra, I'm a villain. (laughs) Oh, Amon captured me at the end of this episode. A few episodes later, look, I'm captured and I feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to tell you everything. And it's just, you know, so much of that, I think, important aspect felt contrived because it was done in a way that wasn't visible or, or, I think, human. And especially with them coming from an abusive father. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been really nice to see more about how shame was utilized in that abuse, how they were themselves shamed by their father for being weak. That was a weapon mm-hmm. used against them, um, not only by their father against Republic City, but against them and, and against each other. And it just would have been, I think, a better, a better engagement with these really unfortunately true representations of abuse um, mm-hmm. that can often exa- happen and contextualize it beyond what ultimately kind of turns out into a story of the idea of, you know, handing down of violence and abuse from generation to generation without, I think, an appropriate engagement with how that can be true and then how also to give agency to those in those cycles and how they break out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's, I mean, there's a few reasons why I don't like Legend of Korra as well as I like The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. And one of them is basically the end of every season. <laughs> I feel like they just rush to tie everything up mm-hmm. and like end in some sort of satisfying ending, even if how the narrative was building thus far wouldn't result in that satisfying ending. Mm. Whereas The Last Airbender was this three-book arc that was so intentionally laid out from the beginning, it doesn't feel like that with Korra, where it's just every single season has a different villain. And I think, yeah, to, to your point, that first season it rushed that which is so important and and which should have been delved into more yeah absolutely yeah well other than cora's season structure what is uh <laughs> what's your missed opportunity 
So my missed opportunity, I, I kind of hinted out a little bit at the beginning, is just kind of, I think, from the, the very basic research that I did, a lot of, unless we are looking for things that the, the actual show and narrative doesn't explicitly present, I think it is a very Western telling of shame. Hmm. And in so being is a colonial perspective. You know, the show was made by two white guys. Mm. And I think that comes out in things that, you know, that, that you would relate to, Chris, as you're watching, which totally makes sense, uh, coming from the background you come from. And a lot of those things make sense to me, too, because I've grown up in the West. This sense of, like, shame is very personal. Well, it's not only personal in East Asia and, and probably outside of East Asia as well. Mm. Families and like wider communities, towns, even an entire country can have shame together. And yeah, wider communities are very invested in the successes and failures of any one person in that group. Because when they achieve well that brings honor to the entire group and when they don't you know that brings shame to the entire group and so that that more communal that more collective cultural element which is so pervasive in asian cultures that being so missing from the series in this area i think is a real shame <laughs> <laughs> and also, I think Western cultures think of things in very black and white terms. It's like shame is bad. Shame is not something we should feel. Whereas that's not necessarily the case. It is both good and bad. It can be both good and bad. And so I think the show, in some ways, it does have this colonial perspective because it's saying that this way of thinking about shame, this Western, this individualistic way of thinking about shame is the right way to think about shame. And characters shouldn't feel this. And it's more beneficial for them and everyone if they don't feel it. Um, which is being like, the Western way is the way, the right way. Yeah. And I, I think that brings to light some of the problematic nature of Avatar which is obviously a show that we both really love. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the showrunners are two white guys. Mm -hmm. That is very much based in Asian cultures and aesthetics and style. I remember when it first came out, people were kind of talking about it like an American anime show. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's also how they sold it to Nickelodeon. <laughs> And we have these, yeah, these different nations that, you know, are often utilizing very East Asian style food and, you know, kanji, all sorts of other kinds of aspects to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many ways they do a great job with it because... A far better job than I've seen other white showrunner dudes do. Exactly. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, just look at the movie to, sh to know exactly how... <laughs> how 
this could have gone. That wasn't even a white showrunner. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you actually have a South Asian <laughs> director. So yeah, you know, there's a lot to admire about the shows for sure. Mm-hmm. But there are still aspects of cultural appropriation and mm-hmm. um, aspects of utilizing the, you know, these archetypes and aesthetics and cultural touch points of East Asian cultures while maintaining still a pretty Western mythology of individualism more than collectivism because... I mean, except with the Avatar themselves, right? Which I think is a really cool aspect of like the Avatar in and of themselves is a collective. Hmm. That's interesting, yeah. While at the same time... Only the Avatar can save the world. Only there's only a, there's, one at a time can save yeah, the world. An individual, even if it's an individual composed of a multiplicity, mm-hmm. that is the world saver. And mm-hmm. all of the group of uh, Team Avatar, you know, even though I think each of the nations has a different kind of distinct form of collectivism as their ideology and as, as a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. The representatives of those nations within Team Avatar are all individualistic, who in ways go against those collective cultural touch points. And so our heroes are still upholding virtues of individualism within a context that is more collectivist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I think there's there's a lot to, clearly there's a lot to (laughs) chew on here, but we're getting away from shame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's the thing where, I don't know who was all in the writer's room and mm-hmm. whatnot. Maybe they did have some Asian Americans. But again, the key part of that would be American, <laughs> right? Right. And the farther away you get from the first generation that, that came to the United States, the further away you'll get from some of those mm-hmm. more communal collective um, ideas as well. And so... Maybe maybe as my takeaway, I'm very interested to like read the rise of Kiyoshi and things like that that I know mm. are written by, I mean, again, an Asian American, but still they're going to have more perspective in into um, some cultural elements than the white creators would. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see kind of if other aspects of cultural competency come out there that they didn't in the show. Yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think my takeaway is, you know, we, we mentioned a couple times that we're, we're currently re-watching the series right now because why not? <laughs> it's great and it was rainy and <laughs> cold and we're all I like... I was fatigued. <laughs> Let's watch Avatar. But in watching it and thinking about this episode and thinking about these conversations and then talking about Zuko and especially the quote with Iroh, I've been thinking a lot about... Not only Iroh's past in dealing with the shame of his actions and, and you know, his his status as part of the Fire Nation, but his purpose as Zuko's teacher and father figure. And how, you know, when Zuko's major conflict is an inner conflict of these dueling sides how he is a teacher who seems to be a teacher of firebending and and protocol and these other kinds of things, but how he's really helping out with this this interior struggle within Zuko. And I'm starting to 
think and and build a headcanon that is seeing Iroh as so much more calculating than I used to think of him as. Mm. Because I think he not only has struggled with these things and made decisions and taken actions to try to deal with them, including becoming a member of the White Lotus and, and these other types of things, but but seeing Zuko as a hope for the Fire Nation and also seeing in Zuko the capability for shameful action that he would like to help with. Not not just for the sake of those who Zuko might hurt, but for Zuko's sake as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, just this kind of caring teacher perspective is really, really interesting to me, but I'm seeing, I think, for the first time how Iroh might be more intentional and calculating about it, his position as such, than I used to think he was. Mm-hmm. Now with you saying that, I'm just thinking... Is Zuko's dueling sides, like, the Asian and the American? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that could be its own podcast. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> and also, I was thinking about, because you mentioned the quote, coming back to how accurate I feel that is, or how much I agree with that statement, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think maybe part of it they got right, and part of it they got wrong. <laughs> Iroh saying, you have to let go of the shame, mm. would would not be culturally congruent. But humility being the antidote to, I think, possibly could be, right? Because it's it's the humbling yourself and saying, no, I was wrong, hmm. and now I will take the correct action. And that is how you, like, restore, regain your faith. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this was a very fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. But why don't you share what we'll be talking about next week? So we are going to be returning to Star Wars, but instead of doing a regular episode, we are going to be doing an episode on The Mandalorian. So if you have not watched it yet, I mean, it's two seasons with, what, 10 episodes each, something like that? Yeah, and they're like 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, you could get through that if you want to before our episode comes out. Yeah. The Mandalorian was a topic that was voted on by our patrons. Um, So thank you to all of those who participated in those voting. And if you want to join them, I suggest you go to patreon.com slash lines, where you can also participate, share your voice, and get access to some great fun content. Yeah. You can find links to our social media and our website in the show notes here. We want to thank Kimberly Taylor Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.